This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of Einstein and Gogo. No, it's not the Radiothon. That is next week, but we have a special guest in the studio today. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me is one of my preferred hosts, uh, Dr. Ewan. How are you, buddy? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? Preferred. I know. I feel very special I now. just made it up on the spot, sorry. <laughs> you tell that all, to all of them, don't you? Every week. <laughs> but in the studio, we also have Amy Shearer title. Hey, how are you going? I'm good. A little bit jet lag, a little bit tired, but how are you guys doing? We're, we're, we're good. We're good. And um, now you're over on tour yes. at the moment. You're, you're rocking around for Science Week. Yes. Being brought out by a various group. We'll give all the so details. So many people. Yeah, so, so many, many people. people are hosting me in various things. I don't really know what's going on. I just show up someplace, talk a lot, and then disappear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do except we don't show up we just we just talk out of people's cars that's right um but you you are working um you we we better give the details you brought out by by australia for national science week and uh some events here in melbourne coming up coordinated by csro and rmit we have a lot on today we're going to talk about some news first and then we're going to get amy to tell us a few things about space which will be pretty cool um we'll do a review of her book she's looking a bit nervous (laughs) <laughs> just here. smiling politely <laughs> It'll be right. Like a good Canadian yeah. like, Oh, a good Canadian Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. There we go yeah. You've only got one cat, so that's okay If you had three cats, we'd treat you differently Oh, well, good Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ewan, let's start with some news What have we got for us? I thought I might talk about cocktails. Now, I know it's a little bit early in the morning for cocktails, but Amy is telling me it's not. Never <laughs> especially, especially as a remedy for jet lag, no exactly. doubt. But uh, there's an interesting study coming out of the uh, Journal of Animal Cognition uh, from Gabriella Sochi and colleagues, and they did a really interesting experiment which involved an orangutan. So an orangutan that actually was having cocktails. Now, non-alcoholic, so mocktails. <laughs> okay, so they're not giving, you know, the wrong things to the orangutan. Or the right things. Or the right things, that's right, depending on your, on your perspective. Mm. The other really cool thing about this is this uh, orangutan has its own bartender, which I think is pretty cool. Now, that's something to strive for in life. Once you've got your own bartender, you know you've made it. But anyway, yep. the science. So what they did was they wanted to actually look at the predictive ability of this orangutan. So we often think that humans have all these special powers that are kind of unique to us and therefore we're kind of just special, right? Like Twitter. Well, Twitter's one. Yes, that special is... Special power. Special in some ways. Uh, and so what they did was they offered this um, orangutan a series of different flavours, so cherry, rhubarb, lemon and cider apple all separately and the orangutan could actually, of course, taste these... Um, mm. And, you know, uh, the orangutan, Nayong, um, decided that cherry was by far the favourite and it hated vinegar and it hated um, lemon as well. But that interesting thing was combinations became important too. So I'm going to get to why this is really interesting. So if the cherry was combined with rhubarb cocktail, that was okay. If it was combined with lemon or vinegar, it was okay. So this is really interesting that the, what the orangutan was actually doing was watching these drinks being made and it was starting to actually predict what the flavours would be like based on its previous experience of the flavours by themselves. Now, this is really interesting because, again, we think that humans have these special abilities to predict what things should be like based on some previous knowledge, not so much other animals. So this is a really, really interesting finding. And this orangutan um, made predictions that were as good as 10 humans, okay? So, again, so they had a control with humans to actually put, you know, some drinks in front of humans and say, okay, tell tell us what this is going to taste like. And... The orangutan performed just as well. 
Now, this is really important when you think about it because, you know, when, as a species, when you're trying to survive in an environment, you need to make predictions about your environment based on information you've got from, you know, um, the past because, of course, if you can go into a situation and go, well, I've eaten that before, that should be okay and I know about this environment, you can make good choices as opposed to bad choices which might affect your survival, your health and so forth. And so what this is um, often referred to as effective forecasting, okay, mm-hmm. and we've often thought this is only kind of unique to humans and not so much other animals, but what this study is showing why the, why the authors are really excited is that this orangutan has advanced mental capabilities and flexible con- cognition potentially. And they're going to be looking at this also in ravens. So ravens are also known as highly intelligent as well. So we know the example that ravens can um, wait for the traffic lights to turn red. They get the seeds to be cracked by the cars. They grab the seeds. Then they you know, get off the road and then the cars go again because mm. they can't crack mm. the seeds by themselves. So we know that animals have these abilities. And so it's just more evidence of, again, just you know, other species being able to perform quite you know, difficult tasks and actually use prior information, which, again, we think is kind of more of a human-centric type of thing. So I mm. think it's a really interesting study. Yeah, gives you a, another reason not to destroy their habitats as well. I mean, not, <laughs> not that you need another reason, but hey, yeah. um, doesn't hurt. That's Avoid palm oil. Yeah. Avoid palm oil. Yeah. yeah. There palm oil in Canada? I don't know. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> Probably. No. Probably. Yeah. yeah, it's bad stuff. Uh, now, uh, I thought I'd just uh, mention some work that was published in Science over the last uh, couple of weeks on sleep deprivation and what's happening with the brain. You still with us, Amy? Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> I'm there. I'm on it. <laughs> um, basically, what they were looking at is what what parts of the brain sort of change at different times. And, I mean, this has some, you know, we all, we all hear this and we go, yeah, well, you know, we're all sleep deprived at various times. This is important. You know, we want to know how to stop feeling like crap afterwards and so forth. But actually, there are some more specific requirements with certain mental illnesses and and serious illnesses that, you know, mean that this work is actually pretty important. So, for example, you know, certain people with dementia will experience um, what they call sundowning, which is a, a scenario where their cognitive abilities tends to really reduce late in the day. So, well, what you know, what's going on there? You know, it's not a daily issue. Um, you'd think that would be the same all the time. And, okay, you get tired, but does your cognition really go down that far? Now, as it turns out, there are a couple of things happening when we're getting tired and if you if you take a group of students and this is what these people did you know never hurts to grab a, some grad students and chuck them in a lab and you <laughs> know pay them, pay them some, bucks and they'll be happy. yeah chuck them some bucks and some burgers and, and they'll do whatever um but if you actually uh say to them you've got to go about sleep for 42 hours it sounds pretty good at the start but no, towards, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> towards the end um, it's a bit rough they took 33 young adults and they basically got them to do a series of tasks that tested their reaction time and their memory which are the two things that tend to go down okay. pretty fast when we're when we're tired and while they were doing that, and this is the new part, because you probably heard about this sort of research before, yep. they also did a range of brain scans. So during that 42-hour um, period, they did essentially 12 brain scans on each individual. So they were looking at the you know, functional MRIs of what was processing where in the brain and so forth. And then they did another one after a recovery period of some 12 hours to see what had sort of returned to normal. And there's all sorts of things in sleep that change, you know, the levels of melatonin in the brain and so forth. These these are, you know, associated with various issues that we have when we're sleep deprived. But what they found was there was two key things that were happening. And you've got to sort of understand what happens to us when we're sleep deprived. I mean, the first thing, and Amy, you're probably experiencing this right now, is our body clock can get out of sync. So we've got this incredible ability to say, you know, every 24 hours, and not quite 24 hours actually, my body clock knows that I do things in cycles. 
And I think everyone will have remembered that scenario where you've been out late and it's so that, you know, it's 4 a.m., you're absolutely stuffed, but then for some reason at 7 o'clock you're okay. You kind mm. of, you know, you, you kick back in and your body is good to go again the next day and you've had the all-nighter, but you're okay. And it's interesting, I mean, you probably come across this, but um, one of the concerns that NASA has with living on Mars is the different length of day. Mm-hmm. And this will not be a problem for a couple of days, but a permanent problem. Mm. And the question is, can our bodies adapt to a permanent different day length? And there's no real answer to that because we can't really readily simulate it too easily here on Earth. Well, right. We can't simulate no. it full stop. Unless you lock people like they did in Russia in the, you know, in the box. And, yeah, yeah. Let's well, not do that. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> um, well, you know, it could, could have its uh, value. But there's two parts of the brain that are sort of being affected here. And one is affected by the, that circadian rhythm that we have. And the other is affected by something we don't understand that well. And that's this drive to sleep. You know, we seem to have this drive to sleep that kind of is independent of the body clock. You get to a point where for whatever reasons, whether it's toxins in the brain or whatever else, you're kind of driven to sleep. And so what they found was, depending on where you were in the sleep cycle, these two areas of the brain that sort of the inner part of the brain, the outer part of the brain was sort of shutting down or, or falling out of sync at different periods during that sleep cycle. So it's kind of opened up the window a bit to what's actually going on in the brain in terms of sleep and whether or not there's a way that we can sort of offset this issue of sleep deprivate, deprivation. Because, of course, there's a lot of people who just have it as a continual problem in their lives and, and, uh, and affected by it in a major mm. way. So it's um, it's interesting work. I mean, whenever you do this sort of work, though, it's always, um, you know, it's it's hard to get definitive answers, I think. I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those areas where, you know, what does it really mean to be sleep-derived? What's happening in the body? And when we know that our bodies get tired, mm. there's that drive for sleep. But you add that into the mix with the circadian rhythm and it all, all of a sudden becomes very complicated. So it's cool stuff. Now, we're going to take a break, uh, and then when we come back, um, we will talk about the Mercury 13. All right. Yeah, you want to do that? Does that yeah, sound good, sure. Amy? Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Let's do that. All right, so um, we'll take a break for some music, folks. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to Einstein, the Go Go on 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Let's talk about some. I mean, you, you've been doing some amazing stuff over the last few years. You've gone ballistic. Oh, um, we, we, we spoke to you once before on the show, but you had to cut the interview short because you were launching, <laughs> launching a, a rocket, rocket in the desert, yeah. which didn't fly in the end. That was the best part. <laughs> was that made up? What? Did you make that part up? Or did it really happen? The launching the rocket, or yeah. you just got sick of no, no, no. and wanted to go. So I was, so I was, I was there in in, uh, in Roswell, the desert in New Mexico, um, launching oh, Roswell. a rocket. I know. Yeah, oh, Roswell. Yeah, okay. Oh my yeah. god! So I got to Roswell, and I thought for sure it was going to be like full of kitschy alien stuff and like really yeah. really fun. Instead, it's the town America just forgot about in 1982. <laughs> like the cabs don't take credit cards. There's no national bank branch, and there's nothing alien related. There's no except aliens. That, it's except that the uh, the McDonald's looks like a spaceship. So we were there, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, we were there launching a rocket for this documentary on goddard and liquid propulsion and we were all there there was the amateur group that had a replica rocket and it was awesome it was all you know shooting shooting the establishing shots in the desert it was like 108 degrees fahrenheit which is 39 40 ish it's hot it's whatever it is it's like disgusting and you want to melt um and then the rocket didn't launch and we had technical issues and they had to launch the rocket a different day and use that footage with my voiceover. It was terrible. And I was so disappointed. Eight and a half hours sitting in the desert waiting to launch the rocket. Good times. It was, and we didn't go. It was just Mm. the most, it was me and a a crew of 
two or three from London just sitting in the desert floors being like, oh, mm, <laughs> come on. Yeah, it was so pretty, sad. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. now, so I let's, um, I mean, we, we should give people a bit of a flavor of the stuff you've done. I mean, mm. first of all, your vintage space video blog. Yes. Yeah. The, the YouTube channel, Vintage Space, um, it's a, a weekly, sometimes two episodes a week if I have a lot of extra time on my hands or feel really fired up about something. Um, it's just little delving into little bits and pieces of space history that I think are kind of fun, kind of interesting. Some, you know, some people like it. Some people mm. really like certain things that you don't even expect. And some people, you know, some episodes fall flat. You never know. But uh, it's kind of my little internet baby because it's ultimately just me finding something, thinking this is really, really cool and doing a video about it. I shoot in my house, yeah. I edit myself. I do all I, completely myself. And then I get to share this like weird nerddom with the whole world. <laughs> and some of it, you know, it falls flat. Some of it does really well. And it's really fun to kind of push, like share that and play with mm. play with it with other people who like the same stuff. So, mm. yeah. And your cat walks across. And, and I try to include my cat, Pete Conrad in as many videos as possible including the video about about tuna eating tuna in space where i actually like bribed him onto my desk to shot shoot him eating tuna as the open because it was adorable if you're gonna dominate internet it's all about cats right all about cats yeah i successfully green screened him a few weeks ago and now i have some footage it's like it's it's not good because you can't like get a cat to sit on a green screen and like Pete, sit, look cute. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but I do have some green-screened cat footage on my hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, besides that, I mean, you're doing some serious stuff. Um, <laughs> it's not all green screening. No, yeah. Green screening the cat. Um, now, let's talk about because one of you, in one of your episodes, you talked about yeah. the Mercury 13, yeah. which I, I have to say, you know, I love space stuff, but I hadn't heard about before I saw that particular video. Yeah. About. The Mercury 13 is an element of space history. Have you heard about this one? Not much, no. sorry, no. So, no, it's most people haven't. And it's because the story of the Mercury 13 is so left out of the popular narrative of Apollo. Mm. So, the Mercury 13 were 13 female pilots, all very established female pilots, who went through the same medical testing as the Mercury 7 astronauts, the first astronauts selected for NASA. And um, one of them went through some of the advanced training, the isolation training, the G-force training, uh, all, all kinds of things that really prove that these women could train, could be trained, and could ultimately fly in space right alongside the men. Mm. But this was, you know, 1962, 1963. Yeah. And not only was NASA, even though it was civilian and is civilian, based on a lot of military structures and bringing a lot of military pieces, all the guys that were NASA were military. Mm, and it was, and yeah. the, their pilots, yeah. their former you know, military mm. men, they'd been working for this. Yeah. Having the idea of bringing in a bunch of, you know, petite women, even though women take up fewer resources, they're smaller, mm. they're lighter. When you're dealing with rockets that explode all the time because things need to be so light, it's easier to launch them. But yeah, they just, the gender barrier was, was high. It was too Strong. much. All too common, unfortunately. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that, that was the thing I was going to ask you about was the, the, the size difference. I mean, I've met mm. a few of these astronauts mm-hmm. and they most of them were ex- sort of Navy fighter pilots and so forth, and they weren't, the, the they weren't Mer- small guys. Yeah, the Mercury 7, they were all uh, fighter pilots. That, yeah. was, that was one of the things because the, the idea was, well, if you're going to put people in a vehicle that they don't that has never mm. flown before and has to survive you want somebody that can really think on the fly and do that and mm. mi- military test pilots yep. were really good at that snap decision in the air yeah. really making sure that like no matter what happens you save yourself yeah. um, and just because it was the 1950s 1960s mm. that excluded women so mm. there were no women that met the basic needs but um, the Mercury spacecraft was so small and weight was such a premium that yeah. I forget the, the 
full details off the top of my head, but the astronauts had to be between, I think, five foot six and five foot eleven wow. and under 180 pounds um, because otherwise they would not be able to fit into the spacecraft and close the door. And also they would be too heavy to actually physically take off the launch pad. <laughs> right. So can you imagine? I mean, I'm super short. I'm four foot eleven and I won't display my weight on the radio, um, but I'm much lighter and smaller than that. Yeah. That if weight is an issue and resources are an issue, stick me up there because yeah. it'll be a lot yeah. easier to launch me into orbit than a guy who's a foot and a bit taller than me. Yeah. Or yeah. jockeys. Yeah. 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 Jockeys, yeah. Jockeys. Yeah, jockeys. Yeah. 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 I wonder if considered jockeys. I don't know. <laughs> I, now, now I need to go see if that was ever a thing. Because I know it was sort of like, who do you put in? Do you put contortionists in? Because they yeah. can bend yeah, all up and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it, well. you know the jockeys yeah. are good at steering horses, but I'm not sure no, 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 about no. re-entry. Yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe. Yeah, Give a bit knows? of training. A bit of training. Who yeah. knows what you can do? So. And, and with with the, these women, these thirteen yeah. women. I mean, were, were they ex-pilots themselves? I mean, is that where they they, they came were into the all program? Pilots. Yeah. Right. So that was um and and interestingly. They all had more flying hours than the Mercury astronauts, and that's largely because oh, wow. if you look at um, women started flying, you know, there were some of the wealthy society women in the United States in the 30s that had the funding to actually, like, just buy piloting time and figure it out. But then there was the other class of women who were, you know, like the Mercury astronauts, that the men of that era that just, like, did odd jobs around stables or around mm. hangers or you know awkward yep. things just to raise a little bit of money to get one hour in the air yeah, hour yeah. by hour they got their mm. licenses so you know the men and women are coming from the same background the men get to go into the military and learn to train for fighter pilots and jet pilots yep. and the women are ferry pilots and they are just doing long-haul things that there aren't enough men to do during the second mm. world war mm. so post-war there's plenty of jobs flying and plenty of men and all these women don't have a spot to go. So they yep. end up with these long-haul flights that nobody wants, ferrying things to South America. So they have more more time in the air. And just yep. as much pi- skill piloting is just a very different kind of piloting. I, mm. I say that as a non-pilot, I should say. Mm. But, you know, it's it's long duration in solving problems, yep. but not in that, like... Korean War kind of stuff. Yeah, not yeah. in yeah. that, like, I'm being shot at and yeah. I'm going down <laughs> and I have to figure out how to get a little bit of lift so I can get this thing down properly mm-hmm. so yeah and, and do, do you know what happened to them post this period i mean because obviously the the program went on to to great things i mean did the 13 kind of just disappear into obscurity did they end up anywhere of prestige that we the, do we know any of them we uh probably not yeah. <laughs> um the most the most notable um at least sort of in the story who kind of stands out is uh jerry cobb she was the first one tested she met dr lovelace who of course had the clinic the lovelace clinic that went mm. uh tested all the mercury astronaut candidates um she she kind of disappeared a little bit and ultimately came back but i don't i just haven't honestly gone through yeah. all of their stories yet i'm actually working on digging out some of the details of their mm. post uh post non astronaut lives um but there's i think they they were all you know active pilots i know some of them the ones that, the, the sorry words the ones that are still around have flown at least recently but you know they are also like the apollo astronauts they yeah. are getting getting up in years yeah they are now uh let's have a just brief chat about your book yeah go for it you okay <laughs> <laughs> now we're gonna get you to leave the room <laughs> all right, all right. Your over no, the no, headphones. You're, you're fine. Um, now, this is a book we were talking as you and I were walking down, um, you know, the ever long 
walkway from where your plane dropped yeah. you off here this morning at Tullamarine Airport, uh, which I think, uh, as I referred to, the, you know, may have crudely said you're at the arse of the airport um, because it was, I think, the, the furthest gate you could be to from, yeah. the, from the car park. Um, but you, you, so the book is called Breaking the Chains of Gravity um, by Amy Shiratow, and it is um, about five, seven years in the making. Yeah, it was a while. Would you like the story of how the book came to be yes, before please. the story of what the book is? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, book, the book came to be, um, I wrote my master's thesis on the Gemini Regalo wing, which is this two-lobed sail that was designed to deploy out of the top of the... Um, blunt-bodied Gemini spacecraft such that it would be able to land like an airplane of sorts on a runway because splashdowns were really expensive because they had to hire like half, not half, but like a decent chunk of the U.S. Navy and, you know, landing in the ocean is dangerous. You have a pilot, fly it down. And I thought that's such a great story. And from that, I can't, I don't even remember how exactly that story came out of me writing my master's thesis Mm. on an obscure landing system. But I knew that after my finishing my master's, I wanted to write for more than five people on a dissertation <laughs> you had five because, oh is that normal i don't know i didn't i mean i didn't do a phd because i really just like got sick of academia and i unceremoniously turned my back on it form of didn't go to my graduation finished my thesis and Ooh. kind of started a blog one day <laughs> um so so i was sort of, yeah, yeah i was kind of you know playing around with it and doing doing some research into things i thought were neat and i kind of put the story together and it was a really long process of trying to find an agent find find a publisher i don't know how to do any of this stuff and then mm. my publisher came to me one day and between signing it and submitting the manuscript was two years okay. but in all that in that time span you know life happens i ended up moving across the country and wrote the actual book probably the bulk of it in about eight months Hmm. Um, but I'd been doing years and years of reading and research and notes Hmm. and had all the things together it was just a matter of like okay I have no excuse sit and write sit and write and it was just yeah constantly just being Hmm. making myself just every day now, and then the last two months was like 14-hour days of just reading the manuscript again. Yeah, I think yeah, I read yeah. it like five times straight through, looking for every detail, everything that I thought could change. And I yeah. can't look at it anymore because every time I look at it, I want to change more things. Now, uh, people who are long-time listeners of the show after more than two decades know that if I don't like a book, I tell you. <laughs> uh, no, you've got, you got to be honest. Uh, yeah, fair. Yeah. Um, and all I can say about this book is, I see, I'm only 53 pages in. So I can only speak to the first. How many pages? Oh, downhill. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's three hundred pages. So oh, that's, that's I'm only pretty good. It's a real one sixth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, God, they call elections on a lot less. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so far, it, Amy, this is a great book. It's Thank a re- you. It is really a good book, and for people who love historical books about these sorts of topics, where there is an infusion of real people into the story, which mm-hmm. is something I, I find it hard to read. You know, Encyclopedia Britannica type. Uh, It'll be stuff. dry. A bit dry, a but where you actually, dry. yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I mean. I've read space books where you know I yeah. love this stuff. I, I, it's it's my jam. But I read these things. I'm like, I don't. I am so bored right now. I am yeah. so bored. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to write something that would make nobody say, I am so bored right now. Yeah. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm only 50 Good. pages in. You never know. Wow. There's still done. five, six of it to, to kill me off. But um, but no, it, it's really good. So congratulations Thank on the book you. because I think it's and it's and it's a part of space history that I haven't read elsewhere, um, which I think you know. 
it always bothers me that someone hasn't put this down. You know, there's a lot of this stuff out there it, where the thing is, people haven't done it. So, I mean, I should, I should probably say what the book is about at this yeah, point. Yeah, let's um, do it. <laughs> <laughs> so the book, the book I, I describe as a prehistory of space flight. Yeah. So it's looking at the development of uh, rockets and space planes and spacecraft and bureaucracy and astronaut training. Basically, all the things that you need to make a space agency mm. and showing how they actually existed independent of one another through in, in the Second World War in Germany and in the United States post-war and all these different military pieces that were then cult, like pulled together by President Eisenhower when he decided that we need a space agency, we being the U.S., we need a space agency that is civilian and here's what we have to work with and everything kind of came together. So NASA wasn't born in a vacuum. It was mm. pulled together from the pre-existing parts and all of the story, I mean, it all exists out there. It's just that for some reason... No one's written it for regular humans to read. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, you read these books, and there's there's really good books out there, but they're really long yeah. and dense. And heavy. You know what? You just, let's get something fun to just get people excited to maybe learn a little bit more about that yeah. era. Yeah, and that's yeah. cool stuff. So um, if you see it out there, folks, it is in bookstores. I picked it up myself uh, this week because they asked Amy for a free copy, but she couldn't be bothered carrying one over for me. How, how I have I have my own copy to show people. That's it. That's it. You're secretly reading it yourself again. Um, I'm, I'm that. I'm that full of myself. All I do is reread so my own you, book. Now that you've written one book, you know what the question is, right? Yeah. When's, When's the next, the next one? one? And I'm what's it on? on it. Yeah. <laughs> I am really. <laughs> so you can grab it, folks. It's called Breaking the Chains of Gravity. I'll put the details up on their Facebook site and so forth. Anyway, for you, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Amy's sticking around for the full hour, so we will cover off some more space stuff. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you're listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We have Amy Shira titled in the studio and Dr. Ewan sitting here as an ecologist going, what the hell's going on here? I'm loving it. I'm loving it. <laughs> you're, you're learning some stuff, buddy. I'm learning a lot. That's good. <laughs> well, strap yourself in because uh, we're going to talk about something now that's a bit more uh, technically yeah. difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah. So one, one of the things that happens when um, – well, to anyone who's seen the film Apollo 13, mm. there's a line where Tom Hanks says, roll complete, we are pitching – it's not a baseball thing, is it, Amy? No, no, it's not. And it's <laughs> the 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 brilliant thing about the movie Paul Thirteen is that he, whoever wrote the script, I can't remember who, but throws in lines like that that are so meaningful for the nerds. Mm. Yeah, like, you don't notice them when you're not a nerd. Yeah, but that's yeah. one of those things that if you ever think about, it, you're like, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So you're going to tell us? Oh God! Because I, I should say, just for the listeners out there, I I gave a version of this to my wife this morning, and her response was, maybe Amy can do a better job. It's a tough world. And I thought, oh, okay. okay. Pressure's on, Amy. <laughs> this is going to be... So I, I feel like I should preface this for listeners that um, this is a question... So, okay, the, the issue is why does I have to roll up a piece of paper and demonstrate because I'm too tactile not to do it? <laughs> you you know, listen, right? I know, listeners can't hear that. I know, I know. But I'm just... I'm, for those of you who can't physically see me right now, I'm rolling up a piece of paper into the shape of a rocket. Um, the issue with the Saturn V rocket, if you've ever seen one, which you have if you've seen any movie about that era of spaceflight, is that the rocket is a symmetrical tube with a bit on the edge, right? So the roll is the roll around its longitudinal axis. So that's from the top of the spacecraft to the bottom of the engines. So the question a lot of people have asked me on the internet 
is if the rocket need if the rocket is perfectly symmetrical, why would it need to roll at all going into orbit? Because mm. the most efficient way to go into orbit for anybody that's ever played Kerbal Space Program or has for some reason thought about how to go into orbit um, is <laughs> to just fly up. Okay, well, I'm going to say this from a North American launch perspective because sure. I don't actually know what would happen if you launched from the Southern Hemisphere now that I'm thinking about it. But if you're launching from Florida, you go straight up and then you pitch over to the east and then mm. that lets you take advantage of the rotation of the Earth to actually gain a bit more momentum to get you into orbit. Yeah. So, it rotates the same way here. Does, but the Earth. Yeah, no, I know, but but would you? But would it be this? Let's not think about that. Let's I, move I know. on. I, I, had know, a, I know. I had a hard enough time. I was the giving toilets? school talks. No, yeah. that one I figured out because of The Simpsons. I'm not going to lie. The Simpsons <laughs> taught me that. She's um, <laughs> going to give you a booting with a regular shoe. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? What, what was I yes. saying? I'm, I'm jet lagged. You can't derail I know, me. I know. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, if that's the simplest way to go into orbit, then why does the rocket have to roll around its axis mm. to then, so, so that, that mo- movement of going east is called pitching. It's, it's sort of the, the uh, east-west axis through the middle of the rocket pitching over. So why does it need to roll? So about, you know, 50 or 200 people have asked me that in the last year, and I just keep kind of putting it off because I'm like, guys, I'm not actually a rocket scientist. Because so you, know, you could have gone with the answer because it looks cool. Because it looks... Yeah, not not only is it flying up and over in a bit of an arc, but we want to spin it as well. Yeah. And that will look cool. Or the default answer, the good default answer is because the nerd said so. Mm. Um, So I went into this one. (laughs) I went into this one and I I spoke with a friend of mine, Dave Woods, who wrote this incredible book. I don't know if I'm allowed to like mention Mm, another book, but How Apollo Flew to the Moon. It is... Everything you never need to know about how Apollo got to the moon. Um, I'm not sure if that's a promo or not. It is. It is absolutely the highest praise I can give it. It is so, <laughs> like, he details every computer program on Apollo, like things really? that you wouldn't, like, what is P52? He goes through how it works. It's awesome. It is a great, and it's like, it's well written that you can actually read it, but it's just the detail. Oh my God, this man is just way too good at this stuff. So I called him <laughs> to ask him to make sure I was getting it right. And he's in Scotland, I'm in Los Angeles, and we're on Skype, and his wife is bringing him cups of tea and I'm sitting there with a can of hairspray trying to understand roll. So I figured it out, and I'm going to try to explain it, but I'm still going to have to visualize on my little paper tube rocket here just right. for my own <laughs> self. So the way the way it works is that the, the launch pad... Oh, this is so nerdy. The launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center slash Cape Canaveral in Florida um, is aligned with the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. Okay. And the... Ooh, Okay, the launch escape, sorry, not the launch escape tower, the, um, the launch umbilical tower, that red tower of mm-hmm. swing arms, is directly due north. And the crew cabin up top, their window is facing due east. Okay. So that's fine. Okay, we're on the Earth, we're aligned to cardinal directions. So it would make sense, you're getting into orbit, you go up and over into east to get into orbit. So they can see, they can see out and they can see the direction they're kind of heading in. Yeah. Because they're looking to the east. Yeah, I don't know if that was necessarily part of the design, but I know that that is... At least for the purposes right now, that is the orientation of the rocket. Let's go with it. Let's go with it. <laughs> so, so the problem is Apollo is not going into orbit, right? Apollo is going to the moon. Mm. And the Earth is moving and the moon is moving. And the moon, so the Earth's, the Earth is, you know, at a point in space, it's orbiting the sun. But the moon is not orbiting in the same plane as the Earth mm. is orbiting the sun. The moon's orbit is actually tilted ever so slightly relative to the Earth's. So you can't go into an orbit that's around the Earth's equator. You have to go into an orbit that puts you in the right inclination to go mm-hmm. to the moon. And if you've ever played Kerbal Space Program, this will be very obvious to you. And if you are like me, 
you will have failed at trying to make this happen in Kerbal Space Program. So the issue with the roll program is because the the rocket being aligned to cardinal directions had to shift so that the guidance platform on the rocket was aligned to the launch azimuth, which is the point in orbit. Oh, nerds! Which is the point in orbit that was um, that would be the right position for the rocket to end up, so that it could burn to go to the moon. And this was not due east. This was always slightly off slightly of off east. of due yeah. east. So that roll program was simply to go from cardinal directions to launch azimuth directions, azimuth directions. So it would fly up, it would roll to the right orientation, and then that simple pitch over would put it perfectly exactly where it had to be in orbit so that the crew could burn the engine one more time and go straight to the really moon. easily straight to the moon. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I suppose that the, the key there is that... It wasn't so bad. No, it wasn't so bad, <laughs> I think, you know. I'll ask my wife when I get home. Because she, she's <laughs> the, That's the, the real judge. Trial. The judge. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because the, the immediate question is, why, you know, maybe this is a historical thing, but why didn't they just build the facility so that it was... It was the facility built for the moon yes. at that point and why didn't they just build it so that it wasn't facing north south east and west so the answer that i will give you is what i think i don't have a firm firm answer so take this as my educated guess don't quote me on this guy okay. um so it was the, the <laughs> those launch pads were built for apollo because yep. the saturn V rocket was a mammoth thing that had to have very specific mm. things um but no two apollo missions flew the exact same trajectory right, right? so it was never going to go into orbit. It was always going to go into a slightly inclined orbit relative to the Earth's equator. But it was always going to be slightly different. Mm. So I, I think at least if you are starting with the cardinal directions, aligning your guidance platform would then have an earthly reference point yep. that's mm. easier to work with yep. as opposed to like, oh, we're inclined 32.8 degrees to whatever, and let's calculate for that. If you're straight on to, yeah. the, to yeah. the things and you know that you have to align your platform and hold it here... It's just it's just easier yeah. to start from that position because yeah. yeah every flight was you know a little bit different depending yeah. on depending on the landing point depending on how fast they were going yeah. and all of those things. It's actually hearing you say that I, I suspect also they were thinking yeah the moon that's where we're going to start you know that's yeah. not where we're going to end I mean they wouldn't have seen it as the end of the program yeah so. and it it might be the case that like that again that's just the simplest way to start mm. a mission and that just makes it so that you can you can roll you can get into any orbit you need to to go anywhere yeah. Cool yeah. stuff. All right. We're going to take a break for some um, alcohol, some, uh, sorry, some uh, music, folks. We and, need uh, a drink we'll after be, <laughs> We'll be back in a minute. Are you okay, Ewan? I'm fine. Yeah, you're an, <laughs> yeah. As an ecologist that survived. That's all covered. Awesome. All right. We'll be back in just a minute, folks. You're listening to 3 to Blah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us is Amy Shira-Tidal. She's on tour of Australia at the moment, doing all sorts of stuff for National Science Week, and Dr Ewan's with me, Dr Shane. And we were going to chat briefly, Amy, about the tuna debacle of Apollo 12 that I suspect most people... Is this just something you uncovered? This is... Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> obviously it happened, so I can't have been the first person to find it. But I... So I do this really nerdy thing where I live-tweet Apollo missions on their 45th anniversaries yeah. as a way yeah. of kind of bringing it to the young people who don't want to read another article, and it's really fun. Which means that I've also read a lot of the Apollo transcripts, um, including Apollo 12, which is my favorite mission and was a lot of fun. But there was this one really interesting moment in that transcript. I think they were like 
little less than halfway to the moon on the outbound leg of the trip when um dick gordon had opened up dick gordon was the command module pilot so the guy that doesn't land on the moon um he'd opened up a a tuna pack for uh, i guess lunch or dinner i think but anyways eight hours later he had half of this tuna pack left over Mm. and wanted to eat it but decided to I think it was Al Bean, the lunar module pilot, who made the call and just asked, you know, is this safe to eat? Because they're flying in a in a hundred percent oxygen environment. If the tuna was going to spoil, it was going to spoil really fast. And if Dick Gordon had food poisoning Ooh. or something, well, he's alone and pseudo, I mean, this could end really, really badly. So they thought they would double Especially check with it. the helmet on. Exactly. Yeah. When they separate the spacecraft, they have the helmet on. The last <laughs> thing you want to be doing is vomiting <laughs> oh, in a pressurized spacesuit. Oh, Ew, can you yeah, imagine? Yeah, yeah. So they want yeah. to avoid this. So he, he calls down to Mission Control and says, is it safe to eat the tuna? And Mission Control can get people to the moon and says, we need to look into that and they get in you know they've got the, the flight flight director and the flight controllers going in trying to figure out like okay well what, what could happen to this tuna how bad could it possibly be and then you know they bring in the flight surgeons and the doctors and then they send it to the back room to the extra people to try to figure out whether or not it's safe to eat the tuna that's been open for eight hours and it's like a 25 minute conversation going back and forth about other things but also about this stupid pack of tuna so i would have eaten the tuna by that stage yeah exactly so so it goes on and on and then the, the ultimately the word comes back of don't eat the tuna <laughs> and an hour later dick gordon's wife shows up his then wife shows up in mission control and passes up through capcom saying uh by the way dick barbara is very happy you did not eat the tuna <laughs> and i just thought this is the weirdest thing that you would never expect to hear about for such a long time on a mission to the moon yeah so i obviously wrote about it on my blog um and then i know dick gordon i've met him at about f- four times at different events and he knows me as the girl who always asks really weird food-based questions be it about <laughs> secret sandwiches or Bacon cubes. I mean, talk about weird ways for Apollo heroes to know you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm guessing it's a fairly sterile environment, though, right? Inside a, inside a rocket and so forth. It's because, definitely sterile. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, I assume it's vacuum packed. And, and then you open it up inside what is probably a very sterile environment. So I'm really curious to know what the microbiologist said about the possibility of like salmonella contamination or something, yeah. because it must be very low, I would have thought. But I, I would think so, but I, I, don't, I just don't know. I, I don't mean, you don't want to go there. You don't want to, yeah. like you said, you Try want to it, mask yeah. full of vomit. But, but uh, it depends who packed it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's one of those things that even if, even if it's vacuum packed and it's sterile and the spacecraft is <clears> sterile, <throat> then you're sticking three men who are, let's be honest, pooping in bags <laughs> in that environment. There's no, yeah. I mean, there's not like you have a clean room and you can eat yeah. in the so yeah. you never know what they're bringing in so. like shane said i just ate it straight up yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so so the the um i i saw dick gordon not long ago <laughs> hang on this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this gets better and i asked him so was, he looks at me and he goes like i don't remember your name but you're the food girl and i was like yeah <laughs> what do you remember about the tuna issue and he's like what are you talking about so i sat down on the floor and i created a hot spot on my phone and i pulled up my blog and i showed him the transcript that i'd written about about this tuna debacle and he starts laughing so hard he's crying and i'm just like this is the best moment of my life first of all. <laughs> and i was like dude you don't remember this at all i mean this was a huge issue and he says no but i probably just ate the tuna and just didn't admit it to them so that they wouldn't <laughs> know i just thought that's i mean there you go that's what you should do yeah, really yeah. it's like oh it was just such a one of those things that just I can't believe of all the things to really discuss going to the moon that tuna was such a big issue. I mean, yeah, like 15 people, yeah. 25 minutes to come up with the decision of like, let's be safe. Yeah. Thank you. Common sense. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm stupid with this stuff. I mean, I often ask my wife to smell stuff because I just, 
you know, I figure I just want a second opinion. I call it death food when it's if tuna has been open for too long. This is in my family. I was like, is it is it good or is it death tuna? Yeah, (laughs) seafood and long time open. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. But the the whole you know the whole term projectile vomiting in space has a completely different (laughs) meaning. I mean, you know, just be blobs floating around in your helmet, bobbing off your eyes, like. (laughs) <laughs> it's shocking stuff it's really shocking stuff now uh we're gonna have to say goodbye soon amy because yeah. uh believe it or not we have to hand over uh, just we've, we've wrecked this for everyone but there's a food show on after us <laughs> called eat it um so people are probably trying to enjoy their lunch yeah but um thanks so much for coming out and well, chatting to us thanks and so much for having me and letting me ramble at you about weird space nerddom it's cool it's cool and congratulations again on your book Thank and you so i much. suggest to people out there um go and buy it it is it is well worth reading on that note myself dr shane a big uh, farewell to you all we're going to hand over to the team from either i think matt stedman is ready although he looks like he's kind of nodding off in the other studio so i better not do anything to him too drastic too early Thank you very much for listening to Triple R. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on the show today, Dr. Amy. No, oh, jeez. Oh, no, no I'm not no, a doctor. No, no, you, no, you bugger that. Doctor titles, bugger that. She is now. She is now. We hand them out here for free. <laughs> uh, Amy Shiratidal, Dr. Ewan, myself, Dr. Shane, and uh, we'll be tweeting and sharing this particular show in a couple of hours' time if you didn't catch all of it. So until then, we will say goodbye and chat to you again next Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.